we are in a collection called essentials. What we're talking about is what are the things that are absolutely essential to our lives of faith? And in this season, we're focusing on scripture. You know, last two weeks, we've been diving deeper into this. We're talking about what is the Bible? What is the Bible for? What should our posture towards the Bible be? And so today we're going to continue that. Now, growing up, I don't know if you can relate, but I've had a very complicated relationship with authority my entire life. I don't know how many of you can resonate with this, but as a kid, whenever rules were shared, whether it's in the classroom, my Sunday school class at home, everything inside of me would want so badly to do the opposite. And so my teacher would say, paint the picture of the house red. And my first instinct is to go for the purple crayon. You know, in high school, no snacks in class just made me want to smuggle in hot Cheetos. I was the, I was the black market for hot Cheetos in my classroom. And by the way, I am an expert at eating the crunchiest foods in the quietest ways. You know, even to this day, you know, in launching and planting a church, they say, you got to plan a launch service for your new church. What did we say? Mm, we're not going to launch. This is not a launch. We're going to emerge, right? There's this naturally rebellious part of me. I don't know what it is, but even our calling as a church, you know, it was prayed over us that we're called to be a home for the rebels and the runaways. And, you know, I really think it's because I'm one of the biggest rebels of them all. You know, I've I've had this very complicated relationship with authority growing up. And I would argue that most of us in the Western world have this adverse reaction to the word authority. And it's really easy to see why. First of all, we live in one of the most anti-authoritarian cities in the world. I mean, we're literally sitting in the birthplace of the hippie movement right here, where it was all about sticking it to the man, questioning authority, living in total freedom. On top of that, we live in an age that emphasizes ideologies like You do you, like live your truth. You're the master of your own destiny. And you know, none of those are wrong inherently, but that's just another thing that that has us questioning authority. On top of all that, we live in a time where we're questioning authority because we're seeing that the systems that were established to protect us all have actually been oppressing some. And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. We should challenge authority when it's used to oppress rather than to protect. We should question authority when it's being abused. But we have to ask this. How is our complicated relationship with authority in the world affecting our relationship with the authority of God? And how is that affecting our understanding of biblical authority? I think more and more we're seeing a growing tension between Christians and the authority of the Bible. And that's what we're going to talk about today, that while the Bible is this beautiful story, it is also meant to have authority over our lives. In other words, we are called to submit to the authority of Scripture. But we come to find that it's not this dreary thing that we've made it out to be but it actually opens us up to a beautiful reality that God has wanted for us from the start. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts as we dive deeper into scripture. And would you show us the beautiful, beautiful nature of the authority of the Bible? 
that it is meant to prosper us. It is meant to lead us into the life that you've always called us to live. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start at the beginning. And so I want to go all the way back to Genesis 3. And we're going to start at verse 1. Many of you know this story, but we're going to go through it. And we're going to look at it through the lens of this idea of biblical authority. Now, this is how it goes. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, first of all, I think we get this story twisted. We think there's two trees, one good, one bad. No, there were many, many groves of trees that they were able to eat from and enjoy, but just one tree that God said, do not eat. Now, I, I, I empathize because if I was in the same situation, I would want to go for the one that you're not, not supposed to eat, right? But all that to say, God was setting them up for success. There are so many trees that they could eat from, just one that they were not to eat from. And it continues, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now looking at this story, what's the first thing that the serpent goes after? It's trust. Adam and Eve's trust in God and in God's love for them. And with that, the serpent went after trust in God's definition of good and evil. Did God really say not to eat that fruit? Come on now. Did God really say not to open up that dating app? Did God really say not to talk behind that person's back? Did God really say not to talk to that guy that you have no business talking to? The first temptation that Satan presented to humanity was a temptation to redefine what was good and what was evil according to their own voice, their own desires, and their own understanding. Rather than trusting in God's love and his wisdom for them. Listen, we have to understand this. All temptation at its core tempts us to redefine good and evil for ourselves apart from God, rather than trusting in God and his design and his wisdom for what's best for us. Now, theologians refer to this moment in Genesis as the introduction of original sin. And the thing we have to understand about sin is this. The essence of sin is actually really trust. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin this way. He says, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. Isn't that true? Isn't that the source of all of our sin? It's really an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me instead is my deepest happiness happiness. Listen, none of us sin because we're trying to be evil. We sin because we believe a lie, 
that we know the way to our happiness better than God, that we know what will satisfy our longings better than God, that we know what's good and what's evil for us. And if you've ever gone through a season where you leaned completely on yourself for your own happiness, you know that you come up short. Sin is trusting ourselves more than God. Sin is trusting the world more than God. And this is the repeating story of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. If you want to take a bird's eye view of the Old Testament, it's basically a repeating story of the people putting their trust in God and then losing their trust in God. They start trusting in other gods and other idols. They start trusting in themselves and they keep saying, we know what's best for us better than you know what's for us. And God's longing all this time to give people the promised land, to give them paradise, to give them all of his good blessings, all of his good gifts. But the people keep refusing it. Why? Because they do not trust that what God ultimately wants for them is their happiness. They think they know better than God what will make them happy and what will satisfy them. And so the Old Testament In a nutshell, it's this repeating cycle of Israel walking away from God and then repenting and returning and then walking away from God and then repenting and returning. You know, have you ever seen that movie Groundhog's Day with uh, Bill Murray? It's this movie where this, this weatherman keeps waking up to the exact same day. And every time the day ends, he wakes up and it's the same day. He's stuck in this cycle of the same day and he's stuck there until finally he lives the day right and he starts changing. And that's when, when he breaks out of the loop of that same repeating day. And that's kind of what Israel was experiencing. They're going through this loop again and again. They can't get it right until we get to Jesus. Jesus is basically humanity's Bill Murray, okay? He lives the day outright. He lives the pattern outright so that humanity breaks out of this cycle of sin. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Also a famous story. We're going to look at it through the lens of what we're talking about today. This is how it starts in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus quoting Deuteronomy, quoting scripture, Deuteronomy 8, 3, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But see, the devil got jukes. He's about to respond to Jesus' response of scripture with more scripture. Check it out. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And quoting Psalm 91, 12, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, quoting Deuteronomy, quoting scripture again, 616. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. You know, the devil was quoting Deuteronomy 613 here. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting scripture once again, Exodus 32, 4, then the devil left him 
and angels came and attended him. You know, what we see happening here is more than just the battle of scriptures, right? It's like, I throw scripture at you. I defend with scripture. I throw scripture back. It's more than just a battle of who knows scripture better. Both of them know scripture really well. Can I tell you something? The enemy knows the Bible, okay? But the fundamental question that's being asked here is this. Do you trust scripture? You see, Jesus in his moment of temptation doesn't just will himself to say no. I don't know if you've been in the middle of temptation, but it's nearly impossible just to will yourself to say no. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't just quote scripture as if it would magically make his temptations go away. You know, one of the worst advice I got in battling lust is just repeat scripture or quote scripture as if it's magically going to make that, that feeling, that temptation go away. It's not true. What happens here is Jesus chooses to trust in scripture as an act of trust in God. And this was the key to his victory. And I believe this is the question that God is asking us today. Will you trust in scripture as an act of trust in me? And this is where we get the term biblical authority. Now, we have to understand there are many types of authority, but there's two that I want to highlight today. The first is structural authority. And this is basically the power to coerce or control from the top down. I mean, this type of authority is always located in a position. And so, for example, we have to obey our superiors or face the consequences. We have to follow the law or we get a ticket. And we obey not out of love or out of trust, but because we don't want to get in trouble. And I think one of the reasons why so many believers have a problem with authority in the church today is because so many believers have felt controlled or coerced by the church in their lives, where leaders with good intentions interpreted rules from the Bible to live by and obey or get shamed culture. And listen, there is a time for structural authority. We need it in the church. We need it in our society. But structural authority is not enough to set your heart free. And so we see this other type of authority known as spiritual authority. And spiritual authority, basically what it is, I love this definition of it, it's an access point to reality, or in other words, the way that things should be. And this type of authority isn't located in a position, but in a person. You submit to this type of authority not because you have to, but because you see something in this person that you want or you need. Think about the term leading authority, right? When someone who's leading authority in a field, they're basically saying this is an expert in the field. Last year, when I wanted to um, celebrate our three-year anniversary, I wanted to make something with my hands. And the first person that I thought of was Daniel King. You know, some of you might know him, but he is this amazingly gifted person with his hands. And he had this wheel in his house, in, in the basement of his house, where he could do ceramics and pottery. And I remember asking him, can you help me make cups for Krista to give to her on our anniversary. And so we actually made this together. It was actually supposed to be way bigger, but I was just so bad at it. But the reason why I went to Daniel is because I believed he had authority 
in this area. I wouldn't go to someone who has no experience, no nothing to show for their abilities, but because I knew Daniel knew what he was doing and he had authority in this area, I went to him. And now I made this beautiful anniversary gift that's too small to be a teacup, but great for a sauce cup. You know, recently, Fatai, I've been seeing that he's been making these incredible things. He made this for us. You know, when I want to make something like this, I'll go to Fatai because he has authority in this area. And Jesus is saying, I am the leading authority in how to live a fulfilled life. Jesus saw himself and his teaching as an access point to reality, to wisdom, to moral knowledge. This is why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I'm an access point to the life that you were always meant to live. If we look in Matthew chapter 7, 28 through 29, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had what? Authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, Jesus had no structural authority. He had no position. He wasn't the head pastor of a mega church. He wasn't on the council. He didn't have degrees or accolades, but he had spiritual authority. And maybe the problem in our day and age is that we have a lot of people in high positions who have power, who actually carry no authority. And the beautiful thing is this, Jesus doesn't use his authority to coerce or control us. In fact, Jesus always gives people the choice to follow him or not. This is why his invitations always sounded like, come, follow me. It was never obey me or go to hell because he knew if people would give him a chance, they would see that he was the real deal. And this is why the Bible, so much of the Bible is in the form of story and poetry that makes statements about reality rather than commands. See, there are commands, but you'll notice that a majority of the Bible is actually just making statements about reality. And Jesus was the master at this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The last shall be first. None of those are commands, just statements about reality. I mean, even think about his parables. They are not commands, but statements about how the world should be and an invitation to join in on this new reality. See, Jesus never forces us to submit to him, but he says, come taste and see that I am good. Because my authority is an access point to kingdom reality. That is, when we submit to Jesus' authority, we start tapping into life the way that it was meant to be. Now, I think most of us have no problem believing that Jesus has ultimate spiritual authority, that we can trust him, that we should submit to him because he knows what's best for our lives. But now comes the Bible. Why should we trust this ancient library? Why should we submit to this age-old text that seems so out of date, so irrelevant for what we're experiencing in life today? And I'm just going to breeze through what's known as the logic of biblical authority. And there's just three points, and we could go way more into this, but I think for the purposes of this teaching, just want to breeze over this really quick. Three, three points of the logic of biblical authority. The first is this. 
all authority is rooted in God. I think we understand that God holds all authority, all power, all authority is wrapped up in who he is. But number two, because God is a relational being, he has from the beginning of time chosen to vest his authority in the prophets and apostles, in other words, the writers of Scripture. And so he has vested his authority to the authors of Scripture through these prophets and apostles. And so all authority belongs to God, but he vests his authority to the prophets and apostles who are the writers of Scripture. And number three, in living under the authority of the Bible, we are choosing to live under the authority of God himself. In other words, in trusting Scripture, we're actually trusting God. In obeying Scripture, we're obeying God. Isn't that powerful? But this is where it gets complicated, right? Because most of the Bible is story and poetry. So then we ask, how do we live under the authority of stories and poems? What about the commands that contradict one another? Which ones do we obey? Do we obey everything from the Old Testament or just the New Testament? Which commands do we obey? And to answer this, we have to understand this one thing. The Bible is a story. Therefore, rules or commands that are right and fitting for one part of the story may not be right and fitting for another part of the story. See, there are commands for ancient Hebrews living under a theocracy that don't apply to modern Americans living in a democracy. Now, to understand this better, we're going to look at something that I think explains everything in life. We're going to look at... Star Wars. That's right. If you look at Star Wars, if you look at the second movie, Empire Strikes Back, which is the best one, in my opinion. By the way, which is your favorite Star Wars movie? Just weigh in in the comments section. Don't say The Last Jedi. Anyway, there are contradictory commands. If you notice, in Empire Strikes Back, the second film in the Star Wars saga, Yoda tells Luke not to go face Darth Vader. But in the next movie, in the third movie, in Return of the Jedi... Yoda tells Luke, you must go face Vader. See, there's contradictory commands, but that command in Empire was right for that time, but it's not right for the next movie. At one point, Luke wasn't ready, and so he was commanded not to go. And later, when he was ready, he was commanded to go face Darth Vader. And the Bible is full of things like this. There are commands and laws that we don't obey today, not because they're, not, they're bad, but because they were good and right for another part of the story. For example, if you're a parent, maybe a rule you'll set in your household is no sweets without my permission. Now, that's fine and probably really good if you're a kid, But when you're a grown 33-year-old man and you need to call your parents to get permission from them to eat a boba bar, like, "Um, Mom, um, I want to eat a boba bar right now. Can I? I know it's after 8. But there's seriously something wrong there. And this is why we don't obey the Old Testament laws. Like, for example, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Right, Ying? So there are laws that were good and right for the time that may not be good and right For the time that we live in now. Now we have to understand we live in the same part of the story as the New Testament church. And so we should obey the instructions given to believers in the New Testament. 
And so we see it's not enough just to follow the rules of the Bible at face value. A mature believer sees the entirety of the Bible, sees the story of the Bible, and lives out that story. Now, one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, he describes the Bible as a five-act play. So imagine it's this production. You go, it's like Hamilton. You sit, and there's five acts to the play. He describes the Bible as being these five acts. The first, creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, Israel. We talked about the Old Testament, the repeating cycle, Groundhog's Day. Act four, Jesus. And act five, the church. And we're in act five right now. But notice this. Most of act five is actually missing. All we have is the beginning of Act 5, which is Matthew all the way to Acts. And we have the end of Act 5, which we see in Revelation. But we live in the in-between. And N.T. Wright says we are like actors. And our job is to act out that missing part of Act 5 based on what's come before us and what we know is coming after us with both continuity and creativity. Now, back to Star Wars. If you know anything about Star Wars, if you're a Star Wars nerd like me, you know that the Star Wars universe is actually quite expansive and large. There's something known as the Star Wars Extended Universe, or they have this, these stories, novels, they have video games that all are wrapped up into what's known as the canon, right? This is the correct story. All of these are, are in the story, and there are some writings, there are some stories that people create for Star Wars that are not part of that canon. In other words, it's not an actual part of the story. And so there's this Star Wars canon, and when the, when the recent trilogy came out, the reason why a lot of Star Wars fans were so upset, especially starting from The Last Jedi all the way to the final film, most people had an issue with the new Star Wars films because it didn't honor the canon. And so the way you're telling the story, they're saying the way you're telling the story right now doesn't line up with what's come before it. It doesn't line up with the canon. Luke Skywalker would never throw the lightsaber behind him and just walk away. A lot of people were arguing that the story right now doesn't line up with the story that's come before. The way the characters are acting right now is out of character with who they were before. That's why so many had, uh, people had problems with the Game of Thrones finale. They say the last season's the worst because they believe the characters are operating outside of canon. And so the job of an actor later in the story is to step into the story and live based on what's come before and in light of what's coming after. And this is our role in Act 5 of the Bible. This is why so much of the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. You'll notice that. It doesn't say you can only spend this many hours on your smartphone every day. It doesn't say this. It just tells you stories or tells you statements about reality. And now you have to act on what's come before and what's coming after with imagination and with creativity. And this is the beauty of the authority of Scripture. It doesn't give you an exhaustive list of rules to follow robotically but a story that you enter into create, creatively. 
And I want to read um, this quote by N.T. Wright. And I've actually listed an additional resource, um, the entirety of this article that N.T. Wright wrote, talking more about this. And that's linked in our notes section. But this is what he says. Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were already in. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary moments have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, How much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word. This is the heart of biblical authority. Not that we obey to avoid punishment. Not that we have this exhaustive list of rules that we must submit to because we have to. But because we see this beautiful story that is so attractive that we want to get swept up in it. And when we submit to this authority, when we submit to this story and we act out our part in it, we access the life that we were always meant to live. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But what does submitting to authority of scripture actually look like? It might mean that when you read in scripture, do not worry. When everything around you is falling to crap, like so many storms are raging around you, nothing is set in place, and you choose to trust in the word of God and say, I will not worry, even though I have a million things to worry about. It means when I read, do not hate others. It means that I, even if I'm justified, to be upset at someone and hate them and believe the worst about them, I will choose not to hate them because I trust in the authority of Scripture. It means when I read, put others before yourself, that it's better to give than to receive. Even when I feel like I have nothing left for myself, I will trust that actually it is better to give than to receive, that it is better to put others before yourself. It means submitting to that word. It means when the Bible says don't have sex outside of the context of marriage, That I will believe that even if I have an opportunity right in front of me, but I'm not married yet, that I'm going to wait. Man, we we went through a string of so many premarital counseling sessions in this year alone. And it's just so beautiful to remember and to describe how good it was to wait. To wait in the context of marriage, to experience the freedom and the pleasure and the beauty of sex. Why? Because we trusted in the authority of Scripture. Now, this week's practice, the, the thing that we want to challenge you to engage in this week is called Lectio Divina. 
And it's a traditional monastic practice of scripture reading, meditation, and prayer. In other words, it's a practiced way of taking the word of God deep into our souls. And it's allowing ourselves to fully submit to scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this is what we're going after with Lectio Divina. The goal is communion with God through his word. In other words, tapping into that access point of life as it should be. Now, there's four components in Lectio Divina. The first is Lectio, and it's known as listening or reading. And in this time, you listen deeply with the ears of your heart. There's no hurry in Lectio Divina, nor is there an intellectual strain to figure out the scripture's meaning. This is not the time to think about context and look up the history and think about the meaning of the scripture. You simply read and you wait quietly on the Holy Spirit as you read, listening for the still small voice of the Lord to speak through his word. You slow down. You read the text. Don't try to interpret it. Don't try to analyze it. Just read and wait quietly on the Holy Spirit, listening for his voice. Now, the second part of this is known as meditatio, or to meditate or reflect. Now, as God speaks to us through the scripture, we reflect on his word by ruminating it on it in our minds. Now, we may focus on one phrase or one word at a time. And so you're reading. You start by reading and listening. And then as soon as something pops out at you, it might be a word or a phrase, you begin to ruminate on it or meditate on it. And you may repeat the word or phrase over and over to yourself so that it interacts with you and informs your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, and your desires. You might be asking, what is God saying to me through this text? How is God aligning my thoughts, feelings, desires to this truth? How is God calling me to submit to the words of the scripture? Now, if you've ever experienced this, you're reading something and something catches your eye, you start repeating it again and again because you want every part of your being to align with that. Not just a head knowledge or an understanding, but all of your life to submit to and align to that word. So that's the second part, to meditate. The third part is oratio, or to pray and to respond. Now, this is our time to respond to God based on what we have read and what we have meditated on. We express to God our feelings, our longings, stirred up by the scripture that we read. It might be us confessing to him a sin, a struggle, or a hurt. It might be us praising him for things that we're grateful for. And during this time, we can respond by praying or even by journaling our prayer. It's a time to respond to God based on the, the revelation that he's given us in our meditation. And then the fourth and the final step is known as contemplatio, which is to contemplate or to rest. The Lectio Divina process ends with resting quietly in God's arms. And no words are necessary at this point. God's words have focused on Christ's indwelling presence. So we simply sit there with Christ in love, joy, and peace, and we're tasting God's goodness. Now notice that this will require more than just five minutes, more than a hurried activity that you throw into your already busy schedule. You have to set aside adequate time to slow down, 
to read and to listen, to meditate, to respond, and to contemplate and rest in his goodness. And so this is our challenge to you this week, church. We want you to practice Lectio Divina in your own personal time. Choose a scripture. We recommend maybe starting in the Psalms or maybe going directly to Jesus's teachings, maybe the Sermon on the Mount or many other ways that you can tap into scripture and you're going to listen and read, you're going to meditate, you're going to respond, and then you're going to rest. Doesn't that sound good? And all of this because we want to access that access point to reality in the story of God. Scripture has authority, and I believe that it is so beautiful, so powerful, so rich, and so life-giving that it is something that we would want to desire submitting to and giving authority to because it's an access point to a reality that God has called us to live. Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that many of us struggle with, first of all, understanding, and second of all, obeying and submitting to the words of Scripture. For some of us, it's hard to get out of our heads that it's this ancient text. What does it have to say to me today? But I pray that you would give us revelation, give us the grace to see that we're in this beautiful narrative, this beautiful story, and we're in Act 5, and that through the Word, through Scripture, You're showing us how we are to live, not just for the sake of obedience, but for the sake of life, that you have life for us, you have good things for us, you have so many blessings for us when we choose to submit to the authority of your word. And so I pray more than just out of duty, I pray that out of the beauty of the story of Scripture, We would choose to submit our lives and make you the master of our entire being. God, we love you and we want to submit ourselves to you by submitting to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome church. We're going to send out resources in the email of how to do Lectio Divina. Uh, Just make sure to set aside time this week to enter into this practice And let's continue diving deeper into scripture together. Awesome, church. We're going to see you next week. I'm not going to be preaching. My beautiful wife, Krista, is going to be preaching. It's going to be an awesome time in the presence of God. So we will see you next week. Have a blessed week, y'all.